All right, we got lots of parents slipping out to take little ones to the nursery. But we're about to bow the knee, and we are about to call on the God that we magnified in song. And so I invite everyone to do that with me, and let's ask the Lord to bless this time to make it effective to speak to His church. Let's pray. Lord, we say to you exactly what we sang to you, Lord. Hallelujah to your name. And we exalt you, Lord Jesus. There is none beside you. You share your glory with none, Lord. You are high and exalted above all so-called gods. You're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we ask you, Lord, to receive our worship today. May it bring you pleasure and honor as we call upon your name even now. Our desire, Lord, is that you would draw near and that you would speak to us today. You are the only Savior and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would exalt the work of Christ in this meeting today. From the very beginning and to the very end, Lord. And we ask you to strengthen this local church. Make us strong, Lord. Make us faithful. Come speak to us today, we pray. Amen. Alright. If you are a member of Grace Community Church, or you attend on any sort of regular basis, you know that our strategy as a local church on Sunday mornings, as we gather together corporately, is to walk through books of the Bible together. That's, if you want to call it our meat and potatoes, that is our meat and potatoes strategy. Okay? Periodically, we will break into teaching through books of the Bible with short series covering various topics that need to be addressed in this local church, things that need to be strengthened, things that, that this local church needs to be reminded of. And today, you have come uh, as we are introducing one of these short series. For the next three or four weeks, we are going to be talking about church membership in various different ways over the next month. So this is what's coming at you. As members of Grace Community Church. This is going to sound in a lot of ways like a family meeting. Okay, this is in a lot of ways this is going to be directly applicable to Grace Community Church. And so if you are a member of Grace Community Church, I want you to listen to me for a second. I want over the next few weeks for the members of this church that you are paying extra close attention. To what Ryan and I are going to be teaching on these various topics regarding church membership. Because as we teach through these topics, we are going to be proposing some changes in the way that we do membership in this local church. We want you to see these changes as coming from Bible, not from man. We want all of us as a local church united around where we're headed as a local church. So we're, we're going to be moving towards making some changes in our church membership. Now, I'll say it like this. These are not catastrophic changes. These are more like tweaking what we've already been going after at Grace Community Church from the very beginning. 
And from the very beginning, we have always said, even, even a year before this church started, and Ryan and my uh, personal conversations, we said, you know what? We want church membership to be meaningful. We want it to mean something in this church. We see that it means something to be a part of a local church in the New Testament. We want to go after that with everything that we have. And we've done that. From the very beginning, we have labored to make it mean something to be a member of this local church. And at the very baseline of that, we are going after regenerate church membership. So at the very baseline, what we mean when we say it means something to be a part of a local church is that it means that somebody's a Christian, that they are regenerated, that they are born again. And if you grew up in this context, this church culture at all, you know that that's a rare thing in this culture. It's a biblical thing to the core. Can't be a member of the body of Christ without belonging to Jesus according to Scripture. But it is a very common thing for church membership in this culture to mean very, very little. And so that's something that the Lord stirred us up to as a local church from the very beginning. Meaningful church membership. But we want to sharpen that even more. Okay? So the changes that we're going to propose making at this local church can be summarized with these three words. Are you ready? Congregational. Covenant membership. Let's say that together. One, two, three. Congregational covenant membership. I want every member at Grace Community Church in the next several weeks as we finish through teaching these things, I want you to be able to articulate what that means and what we're proposing moving towards as a local church. Congregational church, congregational covenant Membership. These things will be clearly taught from Scripture, clearly explained to you as members of this local church, and then we will vote on them as a congregation before any of these changes are made. So that's a heads up of what's coming at you the next several weeks. Today, we're digging into the first in this series on church membership, and before we move any farther, I want to just get a definition out in front of us. We're going to say this word a lot. And I want us all to be agreed, uh, no semantics, gymnastics, of what we mean when we say member of a church. Church membership. Many of you know this. This is not a new thing for most of you in this room. But I want to make sure everybody's on board. What do we mean when we say we want to go after church membership? Church membership. I'll start with just a couple of things that might be common. Uh, but I think that it's not helpful to define church membership in this way. First is this. Church membership is not mainly defined as a badge or some kind of marker that you belong to a certain group of people. It's not mainly defined that your name is on a list of a local church. Now that's a good thing that, that it's clear who belongs to this local church and who doesn't. But the essence of church membership is not your name being on a list or on a roster of a membership of a local church. Next, church membership is not mainly defined in where your body happens to gravitate towards on Sundays and where you gather periodically with the local church on Sundays in the corporate gathering. Now, it's a good thing to gather with the people of God. It's a commanded thing to gather with the people of God. But church membership is not best defined at its very core in attendance and where you go to church. So what is it? 
when we say church membership, I'm going to say that it, at its very core, the best way for us to understand this is church membership is a mutual commitment. It is a mutual commitment. I want you to write this down, this definition. Church membership is a clearly defined mutual commitment between a disciple of Jesus and a local church with its leadership. Say that again. Church membership is a clearly defined mutual commitment between a disciple of Jesus and a local church with its leadership. So I want you to see this mutual mutual part and the twofold part of it. To be a church member is to have a mutual commitment between a disciple of Jesus and a local church, both ways, privilege and responsibility. That local church takes that disciple under its care. It takes responsibility to encourage that disciple, to hold that disciple accountable. And it's a commitment by that disciple to build up that local church, to partner with that local church, to submit to that local church. It's also a mutual commitment between a disciple of Jesus and church leadership. So this is getting even sharper. Both ways. Commitment both ways. It is a commitment from leaders of a local church that I am now responsible for you in a way that I am not responsible for other Christians in our city and around our nation. I am responsible to lead you, to guard you, to feed you with the word of God, to care for you. It is also a, a, a commitment from the other way. It is a commitment of a disciple of Jesus to come under the care of leaders of a local church, to honor them and to submit to their teaching as they lead that local church for the glory of God. It is a mutual commitment. Commitment. That's getting to the heart behind what it means to be a biblical church member. What church are you committed to? Not just your name on a roll, not just your body being there when it gathers. What church are you committed to? And I'll say just two other points just to drive that dagger in real clear when we define this. Two other points. And this is in our individualistic society. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say these two things. Church membership is local, not universal. Or not merely universal. What do I mean by that? I mean, the moment you get saved, the moment you believe the gospel, 1 Corinthians 12, says that you are baptized into the body of Christ. The very moment you become a living, actual member of the church universal, the invisible church, the, the one people of God from all ages scattered all across the nations, the very millisecond you believe the gospel, that happens. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about going after biblical church membership. Not only that, we're talking about you joining a local body of believers. And here's what I'm getting at and why that's so important. When you ask people where they stand with the Lord Jesus, very, very common, okay? Very common through the Jesus movement and some other movements in our nation, 
very common that people are deceived and thinking that I can have Jesus, but I do not need the church. Okay? It's just me and Jesus. My personal relationship with Jesus. The New Testament knows nothing of that. Every disciple that believes the gospel is gathered into these local families of believers. Membership is local. Here's a second refiner. Church membership is clear, not vague. Clear, not vague. Okay? It is a definite joining a group. Nobody's fuzzy about who is a member of the local church in Ephesus or the local church in Corinth in the New Testament. It's clear. It's a definite joining. It's not a loose affiliation. It's not, yeah, I hang out with this group most of the time, most every week, and that automatically makes me a member. It is a clear commitment mutually between this disciple and this local church, and it's clear. It's clear. And I say that just to come against any of these fuzzy ideas that, you know, all that, all that stuff about church membership and that formality, that's that Western church thing. That's, that's, that's not really coming out of Scripture. And I would argue with that, that, yes, this is not a Western church thing. This is just a Bible thing. That disciples of Jesus are clear members of a local church. Not vague. All right? Now, if we define church membership in that way, in the way that we just did, okay, a clear mutual commitment to a local church, if we define it in that way, I want every person in the room to see that that, what we just defined, is so foundational in the Christian life that there are New Testament commands that you cannot keep unless this is a part of your walk with God. Unless you have made a clear commitment to a local body of believers, there are New Testament commands that you cannot keep as a disciple. I'll give you two categories. You think about this. Church discipline. How, how weird is it to think? We, we all know that's in there, even though we live in a culture that hardly ever practices it. And we're going to teach on that next week. Okay? But just think about it right now. Church discipline. The final stage of church discipline is where a congregation removes an unrepentant sinner from their fellowship. So think about how weird that is. If, if, you, if you can take somebody out, there ought to be a real clear who's in. You, you understand that? It's not this loose, vague, hippie thing of I just come. It is a definite, I'm a part of this group. It is clear. Church discipline makes no sense without church membership. It's impossible without church membership. The second group of commands is all these commands that relate to leadership in the local church. Okay? You think about what these commands would mean if we did not have clear church membership. Okay? About submitting to elders and overseers and pastors. Now, you ask yourself, you live in Jackson, Mississippi, Metro Jackson. Does the New Testament command you to submit to, honor, and place yourself under every pastor in Jackson, Mississippi? Is that what the passage means? And everybody in here was saying, no, I don't think that's what it means. In fact, I know a lot of pastors that I never, that I would never count myself as submitting to because they teach a false gospel. 
Okay? So we all know that's not what it means, but come to the backside of that. Those commandments about specific church leaders, and then the other way, that those church leaders are responsible to watch over a flock that has been entrusted to them. Catch this. That they're going to be accountable for, for the job that, the, the job that they've done. Now, question in another way. Does that passage teach that me and Ryan and the leaders of this local church and other local churches around Metro Jackson give an account for every sheep scattered across Metro Jackson, Mississippi? No chance. No chance. So now we're face to face with what we've been talking about the whole time. This is not a Western thing, a modern thing. It's a biblical thing. This is a, a church membership is about keeping the commandments of God. It's not a good idea. It's not a good way to do church. It's about God's commandments, God's wisdom being applied to the way that we operate as a local church. Now, my personal testimony as a new convert, I was very, very weak in this doctrine and these ideas about a disciple's commitment, his relationship to the local church. And I want, I want in this teaching in the next few weeks to make sure that nobody falls through the same cracks that I did, that you have low views of church membership and a low view of your responsibility to the local church. And so today we're going to kick off this series and we're going to hit church membership from the very foundational level. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to read our text together this morning. Matthew 16 verses 13 through 19. This is the Word of God. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is God's word to this local church this morning. I want to look at it under three headings, and I want us to start with what I'm calling this morning the great divide. The great divide. So what's happening in Matthew 16, we're, I mean, we're parachuting right in the middle of this gospel. Almost the actual center of this gospel. And what we just walked into in this passage is a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. It's a private conversation. He is sidebarring his disciples. And what you're going to see him do in this passage is he's going to be, begin to question them. Okay? Now... Jesus knows everything. He is not questioning them because he wants some information that he doesn't have. 
He is instructing these disciples through these questions. He wants to teach them something with the questions that he's asking them. So he's teaching them, the original twelve, and he means to instruct us, the disciples of Jesus, in our generation, because this word is living and active, it's profitable. Okay? So we need to learn something from these questions that Jesus poses to his disciples. And really, they're not questions. It's a question. Okay? Posed to two different groups. Same question. First is this. Who do they say the Son of Man is? Keyword, they. And then the second question, almost verbatim. Who do you, and literally y'all, plural, who do y'all say that I am? I want that to be clear. They and y'all. That's where you praise God for a plural pronoun in the South. Right? Alright. They and y'all. Two groups. This is the two groups. This is the world, they, and the church, y'all. Many times you have heard it said that Jesus gets very personal and puts that question very personal to his disciples. Yes, he does. But he does it corporately. He just asked y'all. He just asked the disciples. He wants to know what the world says about him. And he wants to know what the church says about him. Two groups. Okay? Those words make a distinction between two groups. Those who are inside and those who are outside the kingdom of God. Now, we're talking Christianity 101. The very basics. When we talk about busting humanity into two groups, okay? This is very foundational, very basic to a Christian worldview, a Christian understanding of history, the universe, and all things. That at the very end of the day, humanity is busted into two groups, the world and the church. Believers and unbelievers. There's a group that's going to live forever, and there's a group that's dead in their sins. Very very simple, clear teaching of Scripture. Foundational. Two groups. Not three. Okay? Two groups. Not three. Every person is either a they or a y'all. That's how Jesus categorizes humanity. You're either a they or you're a y'all. It's just that simple. He has no problem with talking in language like this. John 3, you either perish or you live forever. John chapter 5, you either arise to the resurrection of judgment or the resurrection of life. It's really, really clear to him. He doesn't apologize at all for laying it down, black and white. Two groups, they and y'all. And I want us to notice what splits these two groups right down the middle. The they and the y'all. And what splits and what divides those two groups, the world and the church, is what they believe about Jesus. What they say about Jesus. That's how divisive Jesus is. That's how polarizing of a figure the Lord Jesus is. As he comes on the scene and he busts humanity in two. He divides them right in half. He told us that this is why he came. Luke chapter 12 verse 51. Do you think that I came to give peace on earth? No, I'll tell you, but rather division. 
For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother. So you see this, okay? He came to do that. He didn't came to gather all of humanity up and we're singing Kubaya and we're all headed to the same place. He came to make a clear division. Between one group and another group. The Son of God wants it clear who is a they and who is a you. He wants it crystal clear who is following Him and who is not. And here's, here's the problem. As a local church and as individual disciples of Jesus, we are going to be bombarded with satanic strategy to make those lines between those two groups very blurry and very hazy. Okay? And at times we will be outright tempted to interject this third group into these clear two groups. It's a non-existent group, but we will be tempted to embrace it. It has several names. Some call it a carnal Christian. Others call it a worldly believer. This idea that I can have one foot in both groups. One foot in the world, one foot in the church. One foot following the things of the world, the other foot following the Lord Jesus Christ. And they said, there's this third group. I call that the mushy middle. Okay? Surely you have been tempted to blur those lines between those two groups and make some allowances that God's word doesn't make. But what we see is Jesus wants a clear division between who belongs to him and who does not. And I want us to just zone in on one thing. We've got to move fast today. Okay? We've got a lot to cover. But I want you to see this. I think that Jesus is exposing the mushy middle in this passage. Our, our Matthew is exposing it in the way that he answers Jesus' question. Who do they say I am? Notice that everything that Matthew reports for us is a positive thing. Did you notice that? Nobody says, Jesus, they say you are crazy. That you are off your rocker. That you are a blasphemer. Now we know from the rest of the Gospels that people believe that. They believe that about Him. But we see none of that here. Everything that they are saying about Jesus is positive. They think he's a prophet. They think Jesus is a holy man. They have some good, warm, country boy, honorable southern thoughts about Jesus. Oh, he's a holy man. He's a prophet. And then I believe with those words, Jesus is, is exposing something to us. Okay? You can have some good thoughts about the Lord Jesus, some warm feelings when you think about the Lord Jesus and what He's done. But if those thoughts are not right, you are no different than anybody else in that group. You are part of the world, part of the group that is dead in sin, part of the group that will perish forever. The only thing that takes you out of that group and into this other group, the you, the church, the kingdom of God, is believing the Lord Jesus rightly. Rightly, So I want you to see with those answers that he gives of how close a person can be saying positive things about Jesus and, and not know him and enter into eternity in the final judgment with no Savior. Okay? 
That's a warning to us. That's what they're saying. And we live in a very similar culture that say warm, generous, honorable things about Jesus. But that won't cut it. Okay? That will not cut it. All humanity is divided on the basis who knows him rightly. Not just who says a few right things about him, but who knows Jesus rightly. Who knows him in a saving way is who knows him rightly. So I want us to switch our attention to what I'm calling the Christian confession. You see this in verse 16. This confession is made by Peter. Let me just say this before we move, move forward. This is very important. Peter is playing a representative role in this passage. And we can hit that from several different angles. The first you already know about. Jesus didn't ask Peter that question. Who did Jesus ask the question to? They. Y'all. He asked the question corporately. He asked the question to his disciples. Peter gives an answer for the rest of them. If you read through the Gospels, this happens quite a bit. Happens when Jesus rebukes uh, the disciples when they fall asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. He rebukes all through Peter. He is... The spokesman of the twelve. Several times over in the Gospels. It's very important for you understanding this passage that he is playing a representative role. We're also going to see he's a, he's a representative. It's not just him. Because the promises that Jesus gives to Peter are given to all believers in Jesus. And we're going to talk about that more as we progress through this passage. But I want us to see. Okay. This is really the first time, it's an interesting thing to really study the Gospels and to think about, when did they actually become Christians, the disciples? Like you see, um, you're reading it and, and, and you see them leave all and follow Him. In the middle of fishing, dropping nets. We have found the Messiah, we found the Christ. And then you'll see like them drop the ball completely. And you'll see them pick it back up and they'll say something positive about Jesus. Even here... This is the first time really in a formal way that one of the twelve in a public formal way is confessing Jesus as the Messiah. But even just a few verses later, he gets rebuked um, for being under satanic influence of, of being blind to the fact that the Messiah would suffer. And so it's a very interesting thing to, to walk through the light breaking on these disciples' eyes about who Jesus is. But no matter where that actually happens, and it definitely doesn't happen in fullness until after the resurrection, this is pivotal. Okay, This is foundational in our understanding of the gospel accounts in Scripture, of this revelation given to Peter, this Christian confession. Let's read it in verse 16. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Does that fire anybody up just to hear that? That the light's breaking on his eyes and he launches out and ascribes the truth to Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth, do you understand that? Try to put yourself there. They don't know what you know about the coming cross and the resurrection. They don't have the spirit that you have at this point. They are sitting, they're not even sitting at a table, but something like it. They're sitting across the table from a man, from a man. And Peter launches out and says, you, Jesus of Nazareth, I know who you are. 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's an amazing thing. That's an amazing thing for that kind of light to break through in a sinner's mind and a sinner's heart. And here's what we see. So I want us to think about this. We're going to camp here for a second. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? Being a Christian? So let, let's, let's make a habit of going back to these foundational words and unpacking them and making them mean something. Christian, follower of Christ. What do you believe about Jesus? Being a Christian means absolutely nothing without a Christ that's being defined biblically. Absolutely nothing. Take Christ from Christianity, there is nothing left. It is about Him. It is defined by His name. What do you believe about Jesus of Nazareth? Becoming a Christian? It's coming to see Him, believe Him, and confess Him as the Christ and the Son of God. So let's unpack those two things. Christians, Christians believe that Jesus is the Christ. It's the Christ. And here's, here's why I want to hammer that, okay? Becoming a Christian is about mainly about you... Seeing, confessing something about Jesus, not mainly about you receiving something. Okay? Let me just unpack that for a minute. It's increasingly popular in this culture to tell so-called Christian testimonies. You ever heard one of these? Seven or eight minutes talking about how you became a Christian or what God has done in your life. Seven, eight, nine minutes. Very sincere. Tears shed. So-called Christian. Because very often Jesus' name is not even mentioned. Not even mentioned. God had blessed me. Gave me this job. I was doing drugs in college. And, and the Lord helped me to find purpose. And God gave me these wonderful children. Successful. God gave me this godly wife. And I'm talking sincere. I'm not making fun at all. But we can't call anything Christian that doesn't specifically terminate and be and saturated with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not Christian unless it's about Christ. Unless it's about Him. Who He is. His work on the cross on our behalf. His triumphant resurrection from the dead. A Christian testimony is an opportunity to boast in Him. Not mainly to talk about yourself. It's testifying of Him. You see that? So being a Christian is specifically about Jesus. About Jesus. Not mainly about finding purpose or being blessed in a worldly sense with a variety of worldly blessings. It's about Him. Something you didn't see about Him before, now you see it. Something you didn't believe about Him before, now you believe it. You see it so clearly and with so much joy that you would die just to follow Him. He is everything to you. It's about Him. Being a Christian is about Jesus. And what do Christians say? They confess and believe 
that Jesus of Nazareth, that human, that teacher, that Jewish teacher is the Christ. That word means that he is the promised one of Old Testament prophecy. Okay? You might hear somebody say this. I love Jesus Christ. I want Jesus Christ and I don't need any doctrine. I don't need that doctrine stuff. Just give me Jesus Christ. Listen, that, that word that you just tagged on to the end of his name is not his last name. Christ is not his last name. It is a title and it is pregnant with theological significance. To say that Jesus is the Christ means nothing apart from Old Testament prophecy. To ascribe Him as the Christ means that He is the fulfillment of the promises of God from the very beginning. He is the offspring of the woman, Genesis chapter 3, that came to crush the head of the serpent, the long-awaited one, the Christ of God. He is the offspring of Abraham that's come to bless all the families of the earth. He's the king that comes from the line of David that will reign over all that God has made forever. He's the Christ, the Psalm 2 Messiah that will reign, rule all the nations with a rod of iron. He is the Christ. Listen to that. That's very different than what the world said about him. You see that? They said he's a prophet. But the church says, no, he's the one that all the prophets testify about. He's the prophesied one. They're prophets, they're holy men, but he's the object of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the very spirit of prophecy. He is the Christ, the one whom all of human history points towards. Is that what you confess him to be? Do you see the glory of that? He is the point of all things. The long-awaited one, the deliverer, the Messiah, the soon-returning one. God's King, King of kings, and Lord of lords. Is that who you confess Jesus of Nazareth to be? That who you confess Him to be? But it doesn't stop there. Christians also confess that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of the living God. Now we're jumping... Out of the human brain at this point, okay? The Son of the living God. Jesus is nothing less than God's only begotten Son. Only begotten Son. You need to understand this. He's sitting across the table from a man, and he just called him the Son of God. He is the only begotten Son. What does that mean? Think about this. Dogs beget dogs. Okay? Stick with me. Dogs beget dogs. Monkeys beget monkeys. Humans beget humans. And God begets God. To call Him the Son is to ascribe to Him the same nature as the Father. It is a full-throated confession of deity that that man is God, the eternal son. This is exactly what they took in the meaning of the Gospels. Listen to John chapter 5, verse 18. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal 
with God. Making himself equal with God. Is this what you believe about Jesus? That he, the carpenter of Nazareth, that Jewish teacher, is the creator of the ends of the earth. The one who through, through whom and for whom all things were made. He is God the eternal son. Is this what you confess him to be? The Christ and the son of God. So, to be a Christian is not to confess some cold facts about the Lord Jesus. It's to confess a glorious Christ. Amen? We have seen, our eyes have been opened to a glorious Christ. There is none like Him. And you think about it. If a man or a woman sees that rightly, what we just said, we're not talking about one religion among many. We're talking about the creator of the ends of the earth breaking into human history on a rescue mission to save sinners, sending his only begotten son to die on the cross for our sins. The only savior, no salvation in any other name has been given under heaven than the Lord Jesus. When we see this rightly, the glory of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ of God, the son of God, then all of a sudden, the cost of following Him become a no-brainer. Let me talk about that for a second. If this is who He is, what about the cost of what it means to follow Him? Just a few verses later, in Matthew 16, Jesus tells us how to become a Christian. And you know how He defines it? He defines it in terms of you losing your life. Anybody run into the front of that line? Okay. This is a lot different than the church culture. Uh, close your eyes. Bow your head. Pray this prayer. You don't have to submit to anything that Jesus tells you to do. But you're fine forever. Jesus said to become a Christian. To follow me. Is like you losing your life. Losing your life. Taking up your cross. Your instrument of execution. And so the question, same question, who's running to the front of that line? And it has an answer, because the truth is that there are some people running to the front of that line. Who runs to the front? Who runs to the front when Jesus says, to follow me is like losing your life? The one who runs to the front is the one who sees the Lord Jesus in exactly the way that he's confessed to be here. Do you understand this? Okay? If He is the Christ and the Son of God, those words about losing your life are prefaced with these words, follow me. Follow me. What you believe about Him determines your response to Him. So who's going to turn their back on the world? Who's going to lose their life? Is the one who believes that they get all things when they get Christ. You see that? The cost of following Jesus, once that light breaks through and a man or a woman sees the Lord Jesus rightly, the cost of following him become like background noise. You see that? I'm not diminishing it. They're real and you need to count them. But they become like background noise because all, all we just fix our mind on is I can't get past this part of follow me. You mean me? Follow you? You mean I get you? You mean I lose my life, but I gain Christ. 
The Christ of God, the deliverer of the promised one. The Son of God. I can have you. If I just, if I just lose all things, it's a no-brainer. To the point, to the point that that exchange is done joyfully. Selling all things to buy the, the field that contains the treasure of Jesus Christ. This is what a Christian believes about Jesus. Is this what you believe about Christ? This is not just facts. This is beholding glory. There is none like Jesus, the Christ of God, the Son of God, the one to whom all of history points towards. Now, it doesn't matter how sincere you are in your seeking of God and your pursuit of God. It really doesn't. If you fall short of, what, of this confession about Jesus Christ, that He's the Christ, the promised Savior of sinners, and that He is God if you fall short of that, it doesn't matter how sincere you are. You cannot be a Christian. This is the only way someone jumps out of one group and into the other. They see, a Christian sees the Lord Jesus as glorious. Glorious. You get this wrong, you get all things wrong. But, look at what it says. Even when you get it right... He immediately reminds you that it wasn't really you that got right. Look at what it says in verse 17. And Jesus answered him. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. When you get it right, you didn't get it right. Somebody gave that to you about Jesus. That verse humbles man and it exalts God. You are so blind, you can't figure anything out about Jesus. You are dead in sin. That's all those pictures in the Gospels of Jesus raising the dead, opening ears and healing blind eyes. You need that done to you. But it exalts His sovereignty and His power because He's the one who opens the eyes. He's the one who opens the ears. He overpowers our deadness and our blindness. So let's talk about a couple of things I don't want to run past this. Jesus, Jesus just defined blessing for us. You think about how much different a certain cable TV channel would be if they defined blessing like Jesus just did. Jesus just defined blessing in terms of knowledge of Jesus Christ. Blessed are you. Why? Because you just got a revelation about the Christ from God the Father. That's blessing. Knowing the one for whom all things exist. Now we are in the realm of the highest blessings that God bestows upon those who believe the gospel. We know Jesus. That is blessing. And there's nothing above it. We know Jesus Christ. Blessing reminds us that this is undeserved. We do not deserve to know Jesus. But God graciously reveals the truth about Christ to us. You ever thought about that? I think this is a good 
specific thing for each of us to meditate on. You don't even deserve to know His name. The name above every name. You don't even deserve to know it. You don't deserve to know about His saving work, about His bloody atonement for sinners, about His teaching, about His calling sinners to come to Me. All who are labor, labor and are heavy laden. You don't deserve to know about His triumphant resurrection or His promises that we're going to unpack today about building His church. You deserve to know nothing about what God has done in Christ. So how rich are you? How much have you been blessed? You, you live in a nation and in a culture, most of you have heard these things thousands of times over. How blessed are you? You might have $150 in your bank account, but you heard about the Christ of God this morning. How blessed are you? Do you see this? We don't deserve both ways. Me to be talking about Him right now and you to be hearing about Him right now. Just the act of this, gathering around the Word of God about Jesus, is grace from God. God has blessed us. Blessed us. And this blessing of, of knowing Jesus rightly is said to come to us by revelation. Revelation. And that's just a humbling reminder. You might have read the New Testament ten times, but you didn't figure out who Jesus was. It was revealed to you. It was revealed to you. Your mom and dad might have loved the Lord Jesus and planted the gospel in your life for decades. But you're not a Christian because of them. You're a Christian at the end of the day. Because Christ was revealed to you. It did not come from flesh and blood. This is a supernatural thing. Supernatural thing. Something that God does in the heart of man. It's not something that we can reach up and attain. We need God to come down and do something in us. We need our blind eyes open to who Jesus is. My favorite description of this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This exalts the sovereignty and the power of God to save. Listen to how it describes conversion. Look at it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Genesis chapter 1. That same God that created the cosmos. What did He do? That same God has shown in your hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You became a Christian through a sovereign creative work of God. He opened your eyes. He caused the light to break in, in your mind and in your heart about Jesus. And specifically, and I love to talk about this. He illumines not just facts about Jesus in that passage. He illumines the glory. The glory. You say, what do you mean by that? Oh, surely you know what I mean. I heard about the things of Jesus for years. That He died for my sins. That He was God in the flesh. That His salvation that He offers was by grace through faith apart from works. I knew that. I knew all of those things. What was the problem? I could give a rip about it. I could care less about it. At the end of the day, I desired my sin and I desired the things of the world 10,000 times more than I desired Jesus Christ. Why? Because I'm blinded, catch this, 
to glory. I hear about Him. I hear His name. I don't feel any weight in my soul that that's the one for whom all things are made. Blinded to glory and then all of a sudden the light breaks through and I see His name that I've heard for years and all of a sudden there's none like Him. The glory of Christ. So God, the God of Genesis 1, causes the light to break through in the soul about Jesus. And that is what triggers conversion. That is what causes us to trust Him. We see Him as glorious because of this revelation from God the Father. He is the one that turns the lights on in the soul of man. You see that? That means that He gets the glory for conversion, not us. Not us. Nobody can say, I saved myself, or I figured it out. Everybody can say, or everybody falls in a similar experience with Peter, that no, no, no. You're going to hear testimonies in just a minute of how Christ saved brothers and sisters. And you know what's true of them? Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to them. But the Father in heaven revealed the Son to them. This is the grace of God, the revelation from the Father. All right. This is the Christian confession. And I want us to close. Jesus responds to that. That's not made out in the air. And he lets it hang to, to, to see what we think about it. He responds to it. Okay. And here's what we see him say. I'm going to categorize this in three statements. First, we see Jesus pronounce a word of sovereign certainty to Peter and to the church beyond Peter. He says, I will build my church. How many of you in this room want people to be saved? Want, pe want all the nations to be given to the Lord Jesus? You don't have to raise your hand. Just give me a nod. I want people to be saved. I want Christ to be glorified in all the earth. I want the mission of Jesus to be finished because I want to see His face. How comforting is this promise in the midst of those desires? Hey, listen. Jesus says, I will build my church. Boom. No qualifiers. Nothing can stop him in every generation from building his church. The one with all authority in heaven and on earth just told us that he would do something. He will build his church. So we take this with absolute certainty. Nothing can stop him. It's also a word of sovereignty. Why? Because he says, I'm the one that's going to do it. I will build my church. This is the work of Jesus Christ. Souls coming into the kingdom of God. Men and women being converted into the kingdom of God is the work of Jesus, not of man. That's a reminder to us, right? None of us. A great commission applies to every single one of us. But there is no evangelist and no disciple maker in this room that can turn around and say, look what I did. You didn't. Jesus builds his church. It is a word of sovereignty. He shares his glory with no one. He qualifies this statement with this phrase. On this rock, I will build my church. Now, we got to hustle through this, but I do want you to know there's been a lot of disagreement 
over what this passage actually means. Some legitimate interpretation and a lot of illegitimate interpretation. Okay? So let's categorize it like this. There's basically two categories. What is this rock that Jesus refers to in this passage that he's going to build his church on top of? Okay? Two categories. Some say it refers to Peter. His name literally means rock. And there's a word play going on with these words. Okay? And then others say that it refers to Peter's confession, the confession that Peter just made about Jesus. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. And to move through this, I think that the safest approach is to say it means both of those things. It means both. Okay? We should not shy away from language in Scripture like Ephesians 2.20 that says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Okay? Jesus builds His church not just on one or the other. Not just on people, not just on truth. But on confessors, on people like Peter who did what he just did. People who believe and proclaim the truth. Believers with the gospel in their mouth. That's who Jesus is going to build His church on. In every generation. Okay? That is the rock on which Jesus builds His church. Believers proclaiming the truth about Jesus. Okay? Now, having said that, this passage has nothing to do with Peter being the first pope. Peter having supremacy over the other twelve. Uh, nothing to do with Roman Catholic papal succession and everybody outside of the church of Rome being a part of the false church because there's nothing, nothing in this passage that teaches that. Nothing. Okay? We're going to see that the promises made to Peter are promises made to the other disciples. Okay? Remember this. He is answering on behalf of the twelve. He, he is given a privilege in the Gospels. His name is listed first and some of the Names of the disciples in Acts chapter 2. He's the one that opens the door of the gospel to the Jews. In Acts chapter 10, he is the one used by God to open the doors of the gospel to the Gentiles. So no doubt, no doubt, he has a privileged place in Jesus' dealings with him chronologically. But there is nothing in the New Testament that exalts Peter above the other 12 apostles. I'll give you two points real quick. we got to move. Okay? The first is this. In Acts chapter 15, the Apostle James has a side-by-side -side role and authority with Peter in a local church at Jerusalem. He doesn't have authority over the other twelve. In Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul rebukes the Apostle Peter. So this is miles away from papal infallibility. New Testament knows nothing of that. Okay? He's not the leader of the early church. The, the Apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations, is not even Peter. It's, it's the Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter 2. So there's nothing about a pope in this passage. Literally nothing. Okay? What is promised to Peter is promised to others who believe his gospel. Okay? We're going to come back to that in a minute. Second, we see a word. Jesus responds to that confession with a word of victory. Listen to it. The gates of Hades, Hades, will not prevail against it. Okay? Let's understand these metaphors. Gates. What are we supposed to be understanding here? Okay? 
gates either they either they're bars that either keep people in or out. Okay? Keep people in like prisoners. Keep people out like security on your house. Okay? That's what gates do. These are gates of Hades, which in scripture is the place of the dead. It's the place of the dead. So the gates of Hades are the bars that keep the dead where? In Hades. Okay? This is a metaphor of the irreversibility of death. Once you go through those gates, you ain't coming back. You see that? Jesus is promising. Okay, this, 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 this promise here has nothing to do with the church taking over uh, uh, political realms and storming Satan's lair and taking over the earth. Nothing to do with that. Okay, listen, listen. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church that Jesus builds. This is a word of triumph, of ultimate triumph. Jesus is explicitly promising that he is going to raise his church from the dead. He is promising every disciple to be resurrected. The gates of Hades are not going to keep them down. They're going to bust wide open. The disciples of Jesus, the church of Jesus is coming out. Gates of Hades will not prevail against it because Jesus is going to build an indestructible church. Listen to his promise. John chapter 6 verse 40. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. That's what it means to believe the Gospel. To have a promise of ultimate triumph that Jesus is going to raise me from the dead. Listen to what He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 22. As in Adam all die. So also in Christ, all shall be made alive. Jesus is going to raise his church from the dead. The gates of Hades will not prevail, overpower his church. His church. So think about this. There is going to come a definitive moment in space-time history where the church of Jesus is going to rise up and mock death, the final enemy forever. We are going to magnify the powerful saving work of Jesus with a song. Listen to what it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 54. When the mortal put on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Who's ready to sing that song to the glory of Christ? He goes on to say, the sting of, of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why in Romans chapter 8, that believers can say, they're cutting us down, they're slaughtering us all day long, but we're more than conquerors. How can you say that? If you're being slaughtered, but you're more than a conqueror. How is that true? Because they know that that's not the final word. The final word is that the Son of God is raising me from the dead. I will be resurrected by the power of Jesus Christ. Death, where is your sting? Promise to every believer. And lastly, we see Jesus 
respond with a word of authority. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So let's understand this carefully. This is another one that's commonly misunderstood. What do keys do? Let's understand it. What do keys do? And the obvious answer is, well, unless you lock and unlock a door. Okay? And that's what you're supposed to understand this as. Jesus is giving his church the authority to lock, close, unlock, open a door. You see, that's how the keys are used in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Opening and closing a door. Now, what door? Well, they're the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus has given his church authority to open and close the door to the kingdom of heaven. That's what's meant by this language of bonding and loosing. Okay? Opening and closing the door of the kingdom of heaven. That's binding and loosing. Binding, shutting it, loosening, flinging it wide open. Okay? So let's do another corrective. Binding and loosing in this passage has nothing to do with, I, in the name of Jesus, I bind the spirit of adultery. Anybody ever heard that? Okay? I have... I would be a rich man if I heard how many spirits were bound in the name of Jesus. It's a misapplication of this text. I have no problem with, with ascribing to the church authority over the demonic realm in the name of Jesus. Binding and loosing has nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. By the way, how many of you ever heard, I loose the demon of this in Jesus' name? Nobody ever lets them go. Everybody <laughs> shuts them down. Okay? I heard a guy, a pastor, bind a hurricane in the name of Jesus. There's no end to this. To this, okay? This is a very specific promise. The keys open and close the door to the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Opening and closing the door to the kingdom of heaven. It's about affirming kingdom citizens who's walked through that door and who is not. Or another way to say it, it's about church membership. About church membership. Who's in the kingdom of God and who is outside the kingdom of God? Who has been bound and who has been loosed? Jesus is giving His church, listen close, the power to declare who is in and who is out. Okay? And let's camp out on on that word, declarative. This authority is declarative. The church does not have the authority to create kingdom citizens. We just heard that. Jesus is the one who builds the church, right? We just declare things that God has already done. It's a declarative authority, like the priest in the Old Testament, when they declare something clean. They are getting in line with what God says, not the other way around. God is not responding to their words, granting them their words. This is a declarative stewardship.
that Jesus gives his church to affirm or deny that this person or this person is in or out of the kingdom. Declarative authority. Alright? We say, the church, we have the authority given to us by Jesus to apply biblical conversion. So what do you mean by that? We take what God has told us in His Word about biblical conversion and we discern has that happened or has that not to a person who attempts to walk through the door of church membership into the kingdom of God. You see this. Both ways. We bind and we loose. Repentant believers are loosed. We declare to them what God's Word says about them. Repent and believe the Gospel and you're forgiven of your sins. Adopted by God. And then we turn around and we bind. And we say to the unrepentant unbeliever, you are not forgiven of your sins. You have no inheritance in Jesus Christ. You are not part of the kingdom of God. We do both of these things. Okay? In reference to the keys, Jesus tells His church and. John chapter 20, verse 23, very similar. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Again, declarative. We don't actually forgive anybody of their sins. We declare what God has already told them. Believe the gospel, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's our role. It's a proclamation, a declaration. To use these keys, applying biblical conversion, opening the door and closing the door. So listen, what Jesus is doing here is he is giving his church the keys. It is the job of the church to make it clear as an act of love. To make it clear who is in and who is out of the kingdom of God. Church membership is supposed to be a representation of who's in and who's not. There's supposed to be a clear divide. Clear divide. Now, the church is not perfect in the way it uses the keys. You even see this in Acts chapter 9 when, you, when Saul of Tarsus, soon after his conversion, tries to join the church of Jerusalem. And he is stopped. And they bind us. They don't let him come. And then he tells the testimony, some further investigation, and then he comes in and out freely in the church. These things can be misapplied. There's no, there's no uh, promise that the church is going to be perfect, but the church has authority. Church membership is important. It's a representation. It is a representation of who is saved and who is not. Okay? Who is saved and who is not. The most loving thing that we can do as a local church is to bind and loose. You ever thought about that? The most loving thing that we can do to someone who has repented of their sins and believed the gospel of Jesus is to say, brother or sister, your sins are forgiven and we welcome you in the name of Jesus as God has welcomed us in Christ. It's an act of love. The reverse of that is also true. It is the most loving thing that we can do to an unrepentant unbeliever who does not believe the gospel to make them aware of their state by making it clear that they are not a part of the church of Jesus. Okay? This is directly coming against the seeker-sensitive movement, right? Church, 
Is the church of Jesus a place for everybody? Is it? Think about that. We want to be a church that is a place for everybody. And sure, there's a lot of good motives that would cause people to say things like that. But think about what you're saying. The church is a place for believers. There is no such thing as a lost church member. An unconverted church member. Man, if we could cover, recover that in this generation, even in this area of our nation. Just that, that distinction. Binding and loosening. The most loving thing that we can do. What we do as a local church to use these keys is we evaluate. We evaluate someone's gospel. What do they say about Jesus? What do they, who do they say that Jesus Christ is? We evaluate someone's response to that gospel. Have they repented? Have they, have they believed that gospel that they articulated? And then we, we discern and evaluate that, curve, that person's gospel fruit. Is there evidence that the Holy Spirit has regenerated that man or that woman? And we evaluate them. And then we make a pronouncement. We use the keys. We fling the door open or we lovingly keep the door closed. That is the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Binding and loosening. We say to the repentant, we say Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's yours brother, it's yours sister, because you have been broken by the spirit of God. You mourn over your sin. To the unrepentant, the unremorseful, we say the same thing that Peter said in Acts chapter 8. Listen to what he says. It's an act of love. Act of love. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Loose. Bind. Keys of the kingdom. Act of love. This is what Jesus has given this local church. Now, I'll say a couple more things. It's very important that you understand that this authority is derivative. Okay? We mentioned this a second ago. The keys are not a blank check to do whatever you want. Okay? Like binding hurricanes. Right? It is not a blank check to do whatever you want. Okay? And here, here's what I want you to see. The best translation of verse 19 is in the New American Standard Bible. Translates this first future perfect passive. And what this means, I, I want you to see this. This is important. It gets it right. Listen to what it says. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Our authority is derivative. We come into agreement with what God has already said, not the other way around. You see that? Our authority stops when we cease to say the same thing that heaven says. Okay? No more authority. When we agree with heaven, filled with authority, clothed with the authority of Christ. It is derivative. Okay. And lastly, I will say that this authority is congregational. And this is where we're moving towards an application 
closing things down. It's congregational authority. That's why this this passage is getting hijacked by you know Roman Catholic teaching and whatnot. We lose some foundational teaching about the church. We don't see this here. Okay. What is promised to Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, in Matthew 16, fast forward two chapters, and we'll look at this next week. Matthew 18, guess who's using the keys? The local church. The local church. Matthew 18 is an example of a local church disciplining an unrepentant unrepentant man or woman out of their local congregation. And then that passage closes with the same phrase. Bind on earth, bound in heaven. Loose on earth, loose in heaven. And so what that means to us, and we'll talk about this more next week, Matthew 18 says nothing about the apostles. You know what? Matthew 18, this is what we want to grow in. Matthew 18 doesn't even say anything about the leaders of a local church. It's just disciples of Jesus and the family of God caring for one another to the point of correcting sin. But in the middle of a passage that says nothing about apostles and nothing about church leaders, you have a local church using the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It's a congregational authority given to all the people of God. Given to all the people of God. Now, what that means is that we believe that. We believe that that's true for this local church. We believe that Grace Community Church has been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, that we get the privilege and the responsibility to guard the reputation of Jesus Christ on planet earth by declaring God has done a work in him and, and, and that person not yet, by binding and loosening. And that's what's at stake, is the reputation of Jesus, the power of his gospel. Now, that brings us to the congregational part of congregational covenant membership. Okay? It is our role as a congregation to affirm and to deny membership in this local church. I want to talk to you about that for a minute. For a minute. Congregational. Okay? As it stands right now, the way we have put a freeze on membership, by the way. So if you're awaiting to join Grace Community Church, nothing weird. We're just in the process of restructuring how we do things, okay? So how we have done them up to this point is me and Ryan have met with every single person that has joined this church. And we, as best we know how, have gone after discerning biblical conversion and explaining the importance of church membership with every believer. And then, as those processes play out, we have announced the members of Grace Community Church to Grace Community Church. Okay? And what we want to move forward is a more explicit congregational model. Congregational covenant membership. We want to put the keys of the kingdom of God more specifically, more explicitly in the hands of this local church. We want it to be explicit that the congregation is the one receiving the members of this local church. Hang tight for just a moment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul speaks about the church uh, disciplining someone out of their fellowship. And he describes it in a punishment that was issued by the majority. Okay? And so sometimes in this 
you know, a real loose way of talking about the local church, there are things that are ascribed to a modern American Western approach that are just biblical, such as church votes. Like, where's that in the Bible? You know, y'all voting on stuff. Where's that in the Bible? Well, y'all see the word vote in the Bible, but we just saw the word majority in the Bible. So you figure out how to get to a majority of believers doing something corporately without some sort of voting. So what you see is that this stuff is not rooted in tradition. It's just biblical. It's just biblical. A congregation voting to do something. Okay. Now, specifically, that passage says that that church discipline was, was administered by the majority of the congregation. Okay. So listen to this. It stands to reason that if the congregation is the one who is removing a member from its fellowship, then the congregation ought to be the one who receives members into their fellowship. They are the ones that have the keys to bind and to loose. Now, this is, this is about structuring ourselves according to God's word, but this, this affects more than that. This has a practical downplay. Here's what I mean. We have been specifically asking, okay, the Lord to increase our sense of responsibility for one another as members of Grace Community Church. We want to feel that body metaphor, right arm's not doing so good, left arm ought to feel that. We want to grow in that, that we are responsible for, for one another. We have made commitments to one another. We have responsibilities to fulfill to one another. We want that more and more. We want that strengthened in this church. And the members of this church, you received a letter about attendance. That's the heartbeat behind it. Okay? About attending when the local church gathers. If you're a member of Grace Community Church, we want to be strengthened in our concern corporately for one another. Alright? We want to grow in that. So, fast forward. Keys of the kingdom. We want to place these explicitly in the hands of the congregation. Okay? Why? Because the Bible teaches it, number one. But also, we want it to be clear to every member that when somebody stands up and joins this local church, you just received a body part. You just received someone that you are responsible for. You just received someone that you are going to be held accountable for your interaction with them. You just received a new relationship with that person that you don't have with other believers in this city. Therefore, therefore, how important is it that we use these keys with tremendous care? With tremendous care. That we're shutting and flinging that door open and agreeing with heaven of what they say about members of this church. We are getting, we are increasing in number. Okay? The way that we have been doing things worked for a while. But there needs to be more explicit congregational care for one another in this local church. I know Ryan could say the same exact thing. Okay? Alright. We want, at the end of this series, for you to be serious about church membership. And I know that even sounds weird. You know? Like this is something that we check out on. That this is like a, something you talk about on a business meeting of a local church. We want you to be serious about this. We want you to be zealous about these keys that Jesus gave you. That you mean that this responsibility to guard the reputation of Jesus has fallen on me as a disciple. 
We want you to be serious about it. We want you to be zealous about affirming who joins this local church. And what we're praying is that as we restructure some of these things, that God would increase that sense of care for one another from the moment that someone steps in uh, the front door of membership to this church, from the very moment. And so, so what does that mean? Just, just leaving this teaching, okay? If you're going to use the keys, and, and it demands something of you as a disciple. You've got to know the gospel. You've got to know what it is. You've got to know the gospel response. In a nominal Christian culture, you need to be equipped by God the Holy Spirit to discern biblical conversion. You need to be able to discern gospel fruit. You need to be serious about guarding the reputation of Jesus on planet earth. That this is the body of Christ. That this is the light of the world, the salt of the earth. And we want to be serious about guarding our purity before this world. Okay? So let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we ask God over the next several weeks that you bless, Lord. We ask for your guidance, that you would lead us. We ask for your wisdom as a local church. But God, we ask for your blessing. We tell you, Lord, in your presence, God, that we can have the best of structures. But unless you build the house, those who build it labor in vain. And we believe that, Lord. We ask you to build your church in this city. God, we ask you to use this church to preach your gospel in the city. Help us to fill up this city with the teaching of Jesus. God, we ask you to strengthen this membership. Lord, make us healthy. Make us a praise to you in Jackson, Mississippi, Lord. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name.